Welcome back to the Spoonful of Sugar podcast, which is brought to you in partnership with Pharmerica. The title of today's episode is How Operators Can Find the Best Way or Ways Forward. I'm John O'Connor from McKnight's, and I'll be co-hosting with TJ Griffin, RPH, who is the Senior Vice President of Long-Term Care Operations and Chief Pharmacy Officer for Pharmerica. Our special guest is back for an encore conversation. Mark Parkinson is the president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association National Center for Assisted Living. Mark will be joining us in a moment. We'll hear firsthand on growth opportunities and strategies your organization can embrace. Hi, TJ. Well, we're both Big Ten fans, but our beloved conference didn't fare so well in the uh, men's basketball tournament. You think maybe the uh, football season will, will be a little bit better for us? It can't be any worse than that tournament. And I, you know, you asked me the last podcast who, who, who I thought was going to win. And, you know, they, uh, my Iowa Hawkeyes lost in the second game of the whole thing. But uh, I know we have a Kansas fan with us who's probably excited. So uh, <laughs> the only team that could have beat Kansas was Iowa and we, we couldn't get past Richmond. So hopefully football season will be better for us. <laughs> well, I hear Richmond's football team isn't quite as good. So we'll see. <laughs> They're not on our schedule either. Thank heavens. <laughs> Very good. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. Uh, Governor uh, Parkinson, imagine, as, as TJ alluded, you must be pretty happy about the way the tournament's turned out. Yeah, well, first of all, John and, and TJ, great great to be with you th- uh, today. And particularly want to thank Far America. I want the listeners to know Far America is one of the biggest supporters that we have financially. They help us out a ton, and it helps us with our efforts here in D.C., um, yeah, my wife and I met at K- KU Law School, so Kansas winning was a super big deal. And I have a new strategy. The first 11 years that I was at ACA in our in our pool, I picked Kansas. I thought, you know, I'm former governor, I got to be loyal, blah, blah, blah. You know, and we lost every year. Um, this year, I said, the hell with it. I want to win the pool. So I didn't pick Kansas. I picked Gonzaga. <laughs> now, from here on out, I'm picking Gonzaga. That's my new uh, <laughs> well, That's a strategy. <laughs> Well, my, my beloved Eli and I made a quick departure as usual, but it, at least they were kind enough to uh, lend you uh, th- their former coach, Bill Self, who uh, yeah. seems to know a thing or two about basketball. It's, it's turned out for him and us, hasn't it? Absolutely. Well, we might as well go ahead and get started. Um, as, as everyone here probably knows, an unprecedented pandemic has challenged providers in just about every conceivable way. Operational costs rose, occupancy levels dropped, and staffing shortages became the new normal. Faced with these and other challenges, providers have responded by becoming resourceful and innovative as never before. But this sector's work is far from complete. Joining us is uh, Governor Parkinson, who, as I mentioned earlier, uh, heads HCA and NCAL. So we'd like to uh, address some some strategies, including the need to explore vendor partners and local presence, implementing a transitional care management program, deepening relationships with ACOs, investing in specialty care services, ancillary businesses, and ISNPs. Again, Governor, uh, we're, we're thrilled to have you uh, joining us today. I think it's probably safe to say that operators are going to need to adapt in order to survive and thrive. So let's start talking about some of the strategies that might spell the difference. Uh, Pharmerica recently conducted a poll of providers to get a better sense of how they are sizing up growth uh, strategies and opportunities for their organizations. And the need to explore vendor partners and local presence was the number one response. Are you, are you seeing this taking place within your, your membership with, with quite a bit of regularity? Yeah. And I mean, I'm really glad that we're having the discussion that we're having on this podcast because I think it's, it's really important to the future of providers uh, and where they're headed with their businesses. 
So if you if you look at the skilled nursing business itself, just the core skilled nursing business, it, it provides a great service. I don't want to minimize that. But from a business perspective, it's not a very good business. The, the, the business of skilled nursing in normal times had a margin of about 2%. So if you think about a, an average facility out there, maybe grossing $6 million or so, in, in really good normal times, it's making about $120,000. That is a very small margin considering all the risk and all the stuff that we do. The good news is that there are some things that providers of skilled nursing can do to get into other businesses that can enhance that margin. And when I, when I think about it, I really think about it in sort of three different areas. One area is that they can get involved in taking on risk themselves. And so we can talk about that. That would be in the becoming your own Medicare plan, like an institutional special needs plan or getting involved with an ACO, taking on risk is one avenue. A second avenue is specialty care that you refer to, John. There are, there are smart operators out there that have found niches, whether it's event care or, you know, we've got a member that's out there that takes care of old prisoners. You know, the prison system doesn't want these folks anymore. Another more common thing are behavioral management. These are all niches where the Medicaid rate it tends to be much, much higher than the typical Medicaid rate. And so the folks that have figured that out and have gotten into that second area have done well. And then the third area are providers that have gotten involved in ancillaries. Um, they've decided to form their own home health agency or their own rehab company or, or partner up on the pharmacy side, whatever, whatever they can do to get a piece of the businesses that are servicing the core business. So, you know, the core business is really hard. Now, there are some states where the Medicaid rate is decent and the core business is pretty good. But in most states, the core business is not good. So if all you're doing is the core business, there's not very much room for error. And a lot of, you know, it's just very, very hard to succeed. So we can talk about any of those three different areas, but I'll just start out and talk about risk management because that's my favorite area. Um, I love that so many providers are either becoming their own managed care plans or they are partnering up with other people to develop managed care plans. CMS is tired of Medicare. It doesn't like to take on the risk of Medicare anymore. So they basically said to managed care folks, if you'll take over the risk, we'll give you the benefit. And that's, that's hurt us. The managed care companies have come along and taken the benefits of, you know, almost 40% of the beneficiaries right now. And they leave, you know, when they come to our buildings, they only let them stay for a short period of time and they don't pay us a big rate and all that. Well, CMS has also said, hey, provider, if you want to, you can also become a managed care plan through an institutional special needs plan. And we now have multiple members that have taken advantage of that and have become their own managed care companies and are treating and taking the Medicare benefit of the people in their buildings. I, and it's working out really, really well. They're making money. They're getting phenomenal clinical outcomes. Uh, it's just a win-win for everybody. Um, it, it really shifts the paradigm. So all of a sudden, the, you know, the, our members wake up every morning and their first thought is, what can I do to keep my residents healthy? Because if they keep them healthy, they don't have to spend any of that Medicare benefit. They get, they get to pocket it as profit. They don't keep them healthy and they end up going to the hospital, then, then we lose money. And that's basically the same incentive that's around, you know, involvement in ACOs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I would just encourage listeners that if you don't have a risk bearing strategy, get one. 
Um, part, part of being a, a benefit of being a member of AUK, and I'm not trying to you know push our membership here, but we have what we think are three of the biggest national experts in the country on risk management. Part of being a member is you can call them for free, and they'll, they'll walk through and talk with you about what your options are. Whether you're one building or 100 buildings, you should have a risk management um, philosophy, a, a, a um, you should have an approach, a strategy to how you take on more risk and get some of the benefit of good care. And uh, Governor, this is TJ. You know that is such a an important point that uh, the listeners need to to hear. And you know the biggest risk when a patient is discharged from the skilled facility back home is medication management. It's the the, the improper uh, or you know not taking their meds, not following up with their physician, or taking their meds incorrectly, and having a good uh, partner uh, for that transitional care management is so important. Whether that's a home health agency that the facility itself has started, as you as you talked about, or partnering with with vendors who can help manage help manage that transitional care uh, medication management risk because that rehospitalization number that that's a that's a big financial uh, ticket to, to facilities if that if that goes up and we're, we're starting to see that now you know what what is your opinion about transitional care programs and you know you know how can members better take care of uh, of that piece of the pie which I think is really really important myself yeah I completely agree with you and it's really a matter of making sure that you're working with all of the folks in the the various levels of care the home health companies the, the, the pharmacy companies the hospice groups, everybody, making sure you have a good open relationship. You're understanding what's happening to people when they leave the building and go to home. You're making sure they have a good care plan that they're being taken care of. And then really, you know, potentially embracing what I think is the very exciting opportunity of um, becoming a managed care plan for them. And what we see with our innovative and progressive members is that they've started out building institutional special need plans in their buildings. Um, and now they're starting to go out into the community uh, and compete with the large managed care companies and um, get those people into their plans. And I know, you know, if you're sitting here and you're listening to this and you've got one or two buildings, like in Kansas, like Stacy and I had, the most we ever had was six, you're thinking, ah, there's no way I can do this. Well, there actually are ways. There are companies out there that help you figure out how to do this, how to partner up with other people, even if you don't want to develop your own capability. Um, but the days of just being able to take care of people on a Medicaid rate and not interacting with folks all along the healthcare continuum, those days are, are over. Unless you're in just a handful of states where the Medicaid rate happens to be quite good. Um, you've really got to, to modernize what you're doing. That's a great point. So, you know, we, we hear a lot about uh, upstream or going downstream. What is, is it your sense that, that more of your members are are going after what used to be more acute type services, or, or do you find there's a lot of interest in, you know, home care and, and hospice and some of the things that, that used to maybe be considered downstream? I think providers are still going more downstream than they are upstream. So I, I think that um, there are a, a large number of nursing home providers that have developed a home health capability, had developed a hospice capability. Um, some are doing some adult daycare type stuff. Um, you don't see too many that are saying, oh, we really want to take care of way more complicated folks, but there are some. Um, there are some that have unique clinical capabilities um, that are, you know, opening up bent units, have what are almost like swing beds that are almost like hospital parts um, to their facilities. 
any of these strategies can work if they're done well. But I think the easiest, the lowest hanging fruit is is the down, you know, working downstream. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And are, are you finding any sort of um, like regional differences? For example, you know, in the in the south, some of your members tend to be going more towards uh, I don't know home care, whereas maybe in in the the northeast, they're they're going more toward ventilator care, or or is it sort of a case by case type thing? It, it tends to be a state by state thing, and it has to do with the reimbursement rate. So, for example, in Nevada, there's a really good reimbursement rate for behavioral health. Uh, and so that's incentivized a number of providers in Nevada to get really good at behavioral health. Uh, in Maryland, there's a special rate for vent care. Uh, and so that's incentivized folks to do it there. So you really it's it's a matter of what 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 is being reimbursed in your state at a rate higher than the typical Medicaid rate. And that can be influenced. Um, there are people that have decided, hey, we really should have a great behavioral rate. And, and they've gone to the legislature and gotten it. I was going to say, I think it's real important that the operators that are headed in this direction have the right partners with them in order to to help manage that process. They don't have to do it alone. They can create vendor partnerships of folks who have that ability across all states in order to really help them maximize uh, that piece of the business. Because I I agree that I think bundling services and creating partnerships is the best way to go. And I think that's really the future. I mean, you know, from my my point of view, and maybe you'll disagree, Governor, you know, skilled nursing and home health are complementary. They're not in competition with each other. I find them to be complementary services. And that's why I think you're seeing folks get into both and, and create those partnerships. Yeah, I, I completely agree. We take care of different types of people or, or we take care of people that once they get better, home is the right setting for them. So I have never viewed us in competition with home health. I agree with you. It's a complementary service. What we really want in our health teams, particularly in the post-acute side, is we really want everybody to eventually go home, to quickly go home. Um, and then once they go home, we're still sort of on the hook for them um, financially because of the penalty related to rehospitalization. So that's to your earlier point. We got to have really good partners or we got to own it ourselves to make sure that they're getting good care. There was a time when HCA was was pretty much almost exclusively a, a, a skilled care organization, obviously with NCAL that that has changed. And my understanding is that the the, the assisted living or senior living members are, are some of your fastest growing uh, membership. Do you find that strategically um, there, there are some differences in, in, in the way each of those membership cohorts is, is looking uh, forward? Yeah, and it, I, I think that skilled nursing and assisted living go really well together. And, you know, I'm biased in this because the model that my wife and I built is that we would build typically 80 or so units of skilled nursing and that would have about a 50 or so assisted living building attached to it. And there's a real synergy that would develop. We, we wouldn't fill our assisted living residents with, with folks that we advertised for in the community. We would fill them with people that got well enough to, to leave the skilled nursing facility from rehab, but not well enough to go home. And so there's a real, there's a real synergy that develops. I think that we've seen that same kind of synergy develop at ACA MCAL. Um, assisted living has been our real growth area. Uh, we hit about 1.1 million beds in skilled membership about four years ago, and it's going to be hard for us to grow from that. The number of skilled beds in the country is, is, is stagnant, if not slightly declining. 
Um, on the other hand, assisted living continues to grow like gangbusters, uh, and we've almost doubled our, our membership in assisted living over the last um, seven or eight years. So uh, it's, it's worked out really well. I, I know people think, oh, there's conflicts and they're going to end up fighting with each other. It just, it just doesn't materialize that way. And so many skilled nursing providers have figured out what Stacy and I kind of lucked into, that having AL and skilled on the same campus is a really good idea. Um, but it, it's worked out really, really well for us to represent both. Governor, what are the best kind of partnerships that assisted living providers need to have? What is it that uh, you're seeing more of in the assisted living environment that folks could could help your providers with? Well, I mean, the challenge that Stacy and I had, and I, 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 as I talked to some providers, they still have it. You know, it, it's hard to keep every resident happy. And a, a, a challenge that we had in AL for a long time was food. Uh, and I know that sounds very, you know, minor, but it's really, really important. No matter how, no matter what acuity level your residents are at, um, every single day they're going to judge you based upon the three meals that they have, that they have the opportunity to have. And so food, food is really, really important. As assisted living starts to take folks that are older and frailer, it's also really important that assisted living um, back that up with the clinical uh, support that it's going to need to do that. And so all of those relationships that we know are important in skilled nursing are also important in assisted living, having really good uh, core clinical background among your staff, but then also great relationships out in the community. Uh, so I think it, I think assisted living has to continue to be spectacular in terms of the setting, the food, the amenities and all that. It's also going to have to be really good on the clinical side because it's, it's going to be taking older and frailer people as time goes on. Yeah, the, sil the silver tsunami is upon us. And I think you're exactly right. We're seeing that we get more and more requests at Pharmerica for more clinical advice, clinical pharmacist interventions um, in the assisted living setting. And, you know, we're excited and happy to do that. And I think that's ex exactly right as we just get older as a nation. Yep, absolutely. Now, Mark, it, it's, if we could kind of get back to, to the skill side for a second, it, it seemed like ISNPs were really, really hot uh, last couple of years. Is are, are they still as hot as they were, or is, is that sort of cooling off a little bit? They are. They are. And, you know, I, again, I think it's the most exciting development that maybe in my entire time in, in long-term care. The notion that you can start your own managed care company, you can take over the Medicare benefit. Now, we're talking about the long-term care residents in our building. You take over the Medicare benefit for the long-term care residents. You know, just the math of it, you know, say you get 100 people in a building to sign up. You get about $2,500 at the beginning of the month for each of those people. You get about $250,000 that you then use to keep them really, really healthy. And so you send around nurse practitioners. They round on these folks every single day. If they need Medicare benefits, if they go to the hospital, you're responsible. But if you can keep that total Medicare spend under $250,000, you make money. And the providers have done really, really well with that. Now, when the pandemic started, I was concerned that these ISIL were going to get wiped out. Because all of a sudden, there was anybody that goes to the hospital because of COVID or has extraordinary medical care because of COVID, that's going to come out of the ISNIP. Um, but the great news is that the ISNIPs did not get wiped out. They actually became beneficiaries of the phenomena that occurred during COVID, which is that nobody went to the doctor for anything but COVID. So all of the other stuff that typically would have been expensive, you know, didn't occur. 
And so the ISNPs not only survived during COVID, many of, many of them thrived. Uh, and I'm super excited about that. Now, 10% of the residents in the country are in an ISNP. I'd love to see that number grow um, because the care they get, the preventative care is just spectacular. Uh, so I'm, you know, a huge ISNIP proponent. We've started a, a division in ACA that focuses on this, that helps members navigate this if they want to become an ISNIP or join an ISNIP. Uh, I just think the clinical and uh, po- uh, possibilities for residents and the financial possibilities for providers are really, really great. And, and I'm, I'm very encouraged about it. Right, very good. So looking forward, I mean, obviously there hasn't been a whole lot of construction of, of skilled care and there has been more assisted living. But looking forward, obviously there's, as, as TJ mentioned, the, the, the silver tsunami. Are you bearish or bullish about, about the future for your members? Well, I'm still really worried about right now. Um, we got to get through census recovery and we got to get through this insane labor situation. So I'm very worried about the here and now. Long run, it's impossible to not be bullish. Um, I, I agree with what you've said. The, the construction of skilled nursing has basically stopped. And, you know, and, and I just assume it continue to stop for the next four or five years. That's going to really help people that, that have existing beds. At the same time, you know, we get to 2025, not very far away now. The oldest boomers will start turning 80. Uh, and there's going to be huge demand um, for the services that we provide. Uh, so we've got to get through this, you know, hopefully just one last tough year of COVID and get to recovery. Um, and after we do that, I think there's tremendous opportunities. I, I guess you'll stand by is, you know, what's what's your advice for your members? Our advice right now is just to persevere. Um, you know, typically I give these big, you know, high level speeches with all sorts of big, big ideas. We're still in the middle of a crisis. And so just doing the basic blocking and tackling that needs to be done in buildings to get through each day and, you know, put one day behind us and get the next day and finish that next day. And before you know it, we'll be at the end of 2022 and hopefully getting pretty close to census recovery. Some of our staff hopefully will have come back uh, and we'll be in a much better place than we are right now. Very good. And uh, rumor has it that you're a a bit of a blackjack player. Do you have any, uh, any tips for us mere mortals? Well, if you're lucky like I was, you 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 know you, when you're you know in your teenage years, you have an uncle who who teaches you how to cuss and smoke, and 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 mine was even better than that. He taught me how to count cards, not just how to play blackjack, but how to count cards. So I've had a small statistical advantage in blackjack. My advice to normal blackjack players would be to quit, um, but you know just don't do it. Uh, you're flipping a coin and you have a 48% chance to win if you're just, but if you can't hard, you have a slight slim advantage. And so I've been doing that for the last 45 years and it's been a lot of fun. Very good. Very good. Awesome. TJ, any advice from you? Uh, always on the card table. Always hit on 16. If there's a, if there's face card showing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Most people won't do that, but you're they right. Won't. You got yeah, to. Unless the deck is extremely positive. And there are, so there are some times when I don't do that, TJ, and people that think they know what they're doing, they look at me like I'm an idiot. And I just want to say to them, you have no idea how much I know about this game. So, right. <laughs> awesome. Like, typically, you got to hit your 16th, and most people won't. Yep. Very good. Very good. Well, Governor Parkinson, thanks for uh, teaching us a little bit about the industry and a little bit about blackjack. We really appreciate it. 
<laughs> well, folks, um, looks like we've uh, wasted another 20 minutes of your life. You can never get back. No, just kidding. Actually, I hope you've uh, really enjoyed this and we hope you can join us next time because uh, our, our next podcast is going to be live at the uh, Nadana conference uh, down in New Orleans, which should be a lot of fun. So uh, you, you ready for the big easy TJ? Oh, uh, uh, Mr. B's makes the best barbecued shrimp you will ever have. And a Vucare at the Hotel Monteleone. I can't wait. should never say this right before lunchtime. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> well, until then, thanks. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, finally, a special thanks to Farmerica, whose generous support made this presentation possible. To learn more about ways Farmerica can deliver world-class pharmacy services to your organization, we invite you to visit them online at farmerica.com. Along with TJ Griffin, this is John O'Connor wishing you health and happiness. See you next time. Bye now. Bye.